So here we go. We are in the middle of our series called Love and Hate. We are in part four. And so what I want to do is take maybe two or three minutes and just hit the high points of what we've covered in the first three weeks. This morning, um, well, this morning is weird, but only you guys probably care about this. It's part four. It's also part two. So it's part four of the whole series, but last week I started a message that turned into a two-part message we're going to finish this morning. So it's part four, it's part two, it's also the end of like part one. (laughs) And since I've thoroughly confused you before we've even begun, um, let me just do a little recap here. So the first four weeks, which this is the the last of the four, has been laying a foundation for where we're going to go for the rest of the series. So going forward, we're going to begin to talk about some very real issues, some very hard things, things we may deal with in our own life, um, things that we will deal with and encounter in church life, in church community, um, and then finally, things that we're experiencing all the time in our culture, in the very community that we live in here in Knoxville and in our nation and across the globe, just real things that are going on. And so we're going to talk about those things. We'll probably spend... I don't know, six or eight weeks. We'll see how it goes. It'll be through most of the summer. But the foundation we've been laying is so critical because we need to understand a few things. We need to understand God's love, how his love operates, what he loves, how he loves. We also need to understand that there's some things that God hates, but that it's directly connected to his incredible love. He hates things that destroy or harm or rip off those he loves. And so we need to have a healthy perspective on what God loves and how he loves, what God hates and how he hates. And then finally, what's going to be really critical for us is understanding why God corrects those things. Why does God correct? How does he correct? Because there are going to be times and seasons in our life where first and foremost, he's correcting us. I need to be able to hear and receive that correction, but also He wants us to be agents of change. Every single one of us is called to the ministry of reconciliation. Some of us might literally move to another country and be a missionary. Some of us may stand in a pulpit and preach a message. Some of us might teach or lead a class of some sort or lead in worship. Some of us will reach out to our neighbors or pour into our children. Every single one of us that's living within the family of God, is called to be a minister of reconciliation. In some form or fashion, God wants you operating in his kingdom and helping to participate in setting the captives free. So to do that, we have to have a healthy understanding of love and hate and correction and how we can experience that in our own life and how we can walk through that with others in a way that's life-giving and loving and helpful. Does that make sense? Hopefully it will by the time we're done doing all this. So the last three weeks, here's what we covered. Week one, we defined love. And instead of getting into all the different biblical definitions, there's plenty in there. There's lots of good stuff. We'll hit some of them as we go forward. We just looked at the story of the loving father. You may know that story better as the story of the prodigal son, but it's the story of the loving father, the father who loved both of his sons who were both lost. One was lost because he took off and squandered everything and was living a reckless prodigal life. The other one was lost, and yet he was at home. And in some ways, that was more dangerous because he had convinced himself that he loved the father and that he was the good son and doing the right things, but his his heart was far from his father's heart. 
and he was, he was a Pharisee. In fact, Jesus was telling that story in the midst of sinners and Pharisees. And the real point of the message that he was driving home to the Pharisees is, you're missing the boat. You've been invited into a party where we celebrate those who come home. We celebrate the lost who are found. We celebrate the dead who are alive. And you're supposed to be in on that party. And so God's love is for everyone that fits within that scope. That's everybody. The religious who are trying to earn their own way and who are self-righteous and, and the truly lost who are wandering and apart from the Father. That's God's love. It's a love that's reckless. He, he spent lavishly. He gave everything away to his sons. It's reckless. It's extravagant. Our Father is rich. Our dad in heaven is rich. His love is extravagant. Reckless, extravagant, and it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. It costs him a lot. So that was week one. Week two, we talked about hate and kind of defined what that is, why God hates. He hates through the lens of love. Um, it is not a separate characteristic. God has a lot of characteristics that describe who he is and what he does. And here is what God hates. God hates sin. He hates it because it destroys people's lives. It not only ultimately leads to death, it's the reason death and pain and suffering and illnesses exist in this world, but it leads to a life that's dead. It leads to a life that's empty. Even when we are lost and in our sin, while there may be moments where we think, I'm enjoying this, this is fun, the reality is it leaves us empty and wanting more. And God knows that. And so he hates sin because it destroys. He doesn't hate sinners. God loves sinners. Those were the people that were most comfortable with Jesus when he walked this earth. They loved him. They were drawn to him. God loves sinners, but he hates sin because it destroys. Another thing that God hates is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. For a couple reasons. Number one, eventually we start to believe our own hypocrisy and believe that we're better than we are. And Jesus told the Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. You're full of dead man's bones on the inside. Hypocrisy rips us off because we start believing our own newspaper and thinking we're doing all right and we're not. But he also hates it because we project that out to other people and especially people that we influence, people who look to us for any kind of guidance. Now, some of you, I don't know if everyone believes this, even if you are a child in the room, you have influence. My seven-year-old influences my six-year-old. She does. My youngest influences the whole house. I mean, if you've met Kate, she's the exclamation point on our family. She influences the whole house. You have influence. You do. And if we're walking in hypocrisy, then we begin to heap onto other people burdens they cannot possibly live up to because it's false. It's not real. God talks about light and about darkness. And even though sin is dark and it destroys, he says, guess what? You can come into the light. You don't need to stay there and be ashamed. You can come into the light. You can walk in honesty. And in honesty, you can, you can have your sin dealt with. It can be forgiven. You can be healed. And so God hates hypocrisy. And then what goes right along with that is God hates the misrepresentation of light and dark. The scripture talks about that. And it talks about how we live, we will live and we do live in an age that says what's dark is really light and what's light is really dark. 
And God hates that. Not, not just because it's kind of closely related to hypocrisy, but it keeps people trapped. When we misrepresent what is good, when we misrepresent what love is, we're not helping people by trying to be kind and merciful to them and go, well, I'm just tolerating or accepting you. We're not helping them. We're telling them it's okay to stay sick. It's okay to not be well. It's okay to be trapped and stuck. And then they have to look for other reasons to explain why they still feel the way they feel. There's no healing. There's no power for change and new life unless we're honest about what is dark and what is light. And so that's what God hates. Sin, hypocrisy, and he hates it when dark and light are misrepresented. Y'all tracking with me so far? I'm giving you like three or four sermons and one here at the beginning. Okay, and then finally, last week we started talking about correction. That, that God's correction is a form of love. The very fact that he corrects is a sign that we're his kids. You have permission to correct your own children. We see this on display all the time at the pool. I mean, if you want to get in trouble at the pool, try telling somebody else's kid to knock it off. Their mom and dad are going to come into the picture real quick and go, oh, hold on, I, I got that. But my own kids, I have every right and even obligation to correct them and teach them. It's because I love them. I care about them. I want them to learn the right way to live and to treat people. And I know their life's going to benefit from that. God's the same way. And all too often in our day and age, we have come to experience correction from other people as a form of being rejected by people. Rejected by them. And that is not the reality of God's correction. God's correction is actually acceptance. He told us that in Hebrews. We're going to read back over these verses we've already covered. He told us that. You're my son. You're my daughter. That's why I correct you. So reject or correction is not rejection. It's actually a sign of God's love and acceptance in our lives. We need to be able to hear that and walk in that. And then finally, we began to wrap things up as we talked about why correction is important. Um, we started last week with recognizing that it's necessary. We need correction. It's necessary for us. And our response to correction is confession. Our response to correction is confession. When God highlights something in my life, I don't need to minimize it. I don't need to justify myself. I don't need to say things like, well, I didn't really mean to do that and kind of somehow halfway apologize to people, but I'm not really owning the thing that I did. There's power in saying, this is what's broken. This is the specific thing I did that hurt, that caused damage, that I'm sorry for, that I'm asking you to forgive me for. Name it. Be specific. There's, there's powerful freedom available in confession. We also talked about how when we confess, um, not only do we do that like to the specific person, but confession also helps us with accountability. If we want to experience real freedom from sin, tell some people about the sin you've been struggling with. When we just keep it here, confessing to him, he forgives us, but sometimes kind of having that thing hidden and we're the only one that knows about it, it's hard to really see the breakthrough of that thing off of our lives until we invite some other trusted people into our lives. And so confession really helps us begin to walk in freedom and overcome some things. So there's, there's kind of where we've been. Love defined, hate defined, and then talking about God's correcting love. So this is part two of God's correcting love. Um, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off. So let's start by reading again the ground we've already covered in Hebrews chapter 12, 
Uh, last week and this week's sermon is kind of based on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 12 is kind of the full um, gist of it. We're going to read through 5 through 9 right now, what we already covered last week. Here we go. Y'all ready? Was that enough of an intro for you guys? Yeah? You're like, hey, you already preached a whole sermon. We're good. Let's go home. Okay. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons or daughters. And what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? So that's what we had covered so far. And now we're going to pick up in verse 10 this morning. So here we go. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, speaking of God, chastens us for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. So last week we said that correction was necessary. Verse 10 shows us that correction is beneficial. It's not just necessary, it's beneficial. We profit from it. It has value in our lives. Now this word profit right here, it's really interesting um, it shows up again in another place in Scripture. So here in, in Hebrews 12, it's saying that we profit from correction. Well, that same Greek word is translated in Acts chapter 19 in the midst of something incredible that God was doing in a community of people where correction was being brought. And it said that they brought all their stuff together. So let's check this out. Acts chapter 19, we're going to see this in practice. Verses 17 through 20. Watch what's happening here um, amongst the early church in Ephesus. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So there was some serious correction happening. It caught their attention. They recognized that they had a need for change. And God's name, Jesus' name, was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. So they put into practice what we talked about last week. But then check this out. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together. That's that, that's that same word, profit. They brought it all together, all their resources together, and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. This is a fortune. So the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. Correction is so valuable that it's worth a fortune. It's worth a fortune. And the people recognized the value of the correction they were receiving and the call to follow Jesus. They didn't just sit by and go, oh man, that sounds pretty good. I guess I'll have some of that. They recognized, number one, man, I need to confess and acknowledge where I've been blowing it. But number two, something has to change. And so I am going to gather up all this stuff that has been so valuable to me that I've held on to and based my life around 
that while it is worth a lot, it has been destroying me and ripping me off and I'm going to come exchange it. They didn't just put it away on the shelf and go, I guess I'll be done with that for now. Or I'll leave a little in reserve because maybe if this Jesus thing doesn't work out, I can go back to that. They brought it and they burned it. They realized something radical. There was power in an exchange from this thing that I have considered to be valuable in my life and bringing it to him and receiving from him what he says is truly valuable. And so they did that exchange. They burned it. It was gone. Did you catch what immediately followed when they got rid of the junk? The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. That's what we were just singing. If I'm willing to deal with my sin severely, radically, fully, there's victory. There's victory. They gathered it all up and they brought it and they said, I'm done with this. What they were modeling, without the specific word being used in this passage, what they were modeling is true repentance. See, that's, that's our next response to correction. First, I confess. I acknowledge what the thing is. But repentance and confession are slightly different. Confession is, here's the thing that's wrong. Repentance is, there's that thing that's wrong. I'm going this way now. I'm changing course. I'm changing my direction. Check this out. It's so important to see this because repentance comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. But if we understand the benefit, it's worth it. So we're going to check this out in Matthew chapter 4. I want to give you a little background here. Um, Jesus, at the end of Matthew chapter 3, has gone to John the Baptist. He's been baptized Immediately after that, the opening verses in chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted. And as soon as he comes out of the wilderness, something happens. He comes out of the wilderness and John the Baptist is arrested and then Jesus begins his ministry. It's this, this, this moment of change. Jesus is now on the scene and begins to declare what he came to declare. And check out what he says. After um, Matthew writing and saying that Jesus was fulfilling some scripture found in Isaiah, he finishes writing about that Isaiah passage and he says, here's what Jesus' ministry was all about. Matthew 4, 16. That the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Can you all say that with me this morning? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's talk about the repent part for just a minute. That word repent there, it comes from two root words. The first word, meta, denotes change. Change of a place or of a condition. So it's, it's a physical change that takes place. My condition is different. Where I'm standing is even different. I was in downtown Knoxville. Now I'm in West Knoxville. My, my location has changed. You, in some ways, you repented of your house this morning and came here. All right, you changed location. You were at your home, you moved here. That's the first half of the word. It, it, denote, it denotes change. The second half of the word means to exercise the mind or to think or comprehend. So there, there is a mental decision being made 
that brings about a physical change of condition or location. I'm going to say that again. This is what repentance is. There, there is a mental decision that is made that brings about a change of condition and location. There is thought and action involved in repentance. Thought and action, working together, that's true repentance. It is distinguished very specifically from a different word that shows up in the scripture, a different Greek word that simply means to regret. It simply means to regret. That is different from repentance. And we're going to explore that in this next verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Paul begins to unpack this idea of understanding what godly repentance really is. That it's thought and action and that it's different than just regretting or feeling sorry for your actions. Or feeling sorry for what's happening to you because of your reactions. You know, I'm not going to make a full-blown comment on Kathy Griffin this morning or what the condition of her heart is, but what I saw outwardly being communicated was regret. That's what I saw. I don't know if anybody saw her apology video or whatever. I saw regret. Now, I'm not judging her heart. I want to give you a picture of something recent that you can consider. There was an action. There have been consequences. What I witnessed on the video was was regret, if you just want a visual of that. Have y'all even seen that? Some of y'all are looking at me like, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. Okay, well, you can Google it later, I guess. Um, anyways, there's a difference. And, and this is important for us to understand because, again, and this is probably just human nature. You know, there's, there's times where I look at the culture we live in and I go, I see things that are just common and prevalent in our culture. It probably is just human nature. Our human nature is to regret. It's kind of a normal thing for us to do something and go, man, that was dumb, or gosh, I really blew it there, and have regret. It goes counter to our nature to repent. That is not something innate that is within us. And often, when we're expressing regret or that we're sorry, we want something to change. We want something back that we messed up. I want out of the consequences I want that person to let me off the hook that I really damaged. It's because I regret what I did. But true repentance is different, and Paul talks about that here in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. Here we go. Verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Paul's rejoicing because he had called out the Corinthians for something, and it struck them hard. And they felt grief over what they had done wrong. And Paul says, I'm rejoicing because you got it. Notice he's not celebrating just that they felt crummy. He said, your grief led to something and that's why I'm happy. Listen, this isn't about taking joy and making people feel terrible when they screw up. That's not what the scripture is talking about. He's talking about calling somebody out and it leads somewhere. The grief led into repenting. He says, for you felt a godly grief. Did y'all know there was such a thing? Godly grief. So that you suffered no loss through us. So the grief actually produced something beneficial. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is regret. 
And it's, it's dead, it's empty. It doesn't satisfy, it doesn't set free. But Jesus calls us into a life without regret. Have y'all ever heard that song? There's a line in that song where it says, I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way he loves me. You know that song, He Loves Us? Yeah, I don't even have to. I don't have to maintain regrets. I might still deal with some specific consequences in my life, but I can walk in freedom when I have first walked in true repentance. It's a path that we walk, but I can live regret-free because of the power of repentance in my life. Check this out. Look at how cool this is, what's described in Acts chapter 3 as Peter is preaching and he's talking about what repentance will bring about in our life. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Okay, here's the picture. Y'all got two minutes to see a little bit of a word picture here? Okay, we started with Jesus preaching something. He preached, repent for what? Do y'all remember what you said? The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, here is repentance. I already gave you a little bit of this visual a minute ago. Repentance is not just saying, I'm done with that. It's not just saying that. It is saying that. It says, I'm sick of that. I'm done with it. I'm through with it. My, I've made up my mind. That's got to go. Therefore, the decision I've made in my mind is going to lead me to an action. I'm going to turn. I'm tired of that, so I'm turning away from it. Now, many of us get that. Do y'all understand that picture of repentance? Okay, but, but often we forget the second half of what Jesus said. Repent, for my kingdom is at hand. Repentance isn't just turning away from something. Repentance is turning towards something. I am exchanging something crummy that kills me, that rips me off, and I'm turning to something glorious and free and wonderful. All too often when it comes to repentance, I think of receiving mercy. I think of, of being sick of my sin. I forget that I'm repenting towards righteousness. I'm repenting towards holiness. I should thank God just as often for his righteousness and holiness that's available in Jesus as I thank him for his mercy that's new every day. The problem is a lot of our lives are so ripped off. We're settling for something so much less. We settle for a Christianity that's just kind of here. It's like a little step in the right direction. It's like a little better. And we spend so much time trying to shake off the crummy that we don't step into what's glorious. We don't step into what's wonderful and available in Jesus. We're not just repenting of some old mess. We're changing course. We're moving into a new location. I now reside where? In God's presence. Peter said that we repent and we receive times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. There is no satisfaction, there is no refreshing, and there is no peace in this life apart from Jesus Christ. None. We will be dissatisfied. And if I, I spend my life just battling back and forth with sin instead of going, God, I can not only forsake this, I can turn to you and experience new life in you. 
You give me your righteousness. You make me righteous in you. I'm not talking about striving. I'm talking about resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's available. And if we, if we move into his presence when we repent, we find the rest we're looking for, we find the refreshing we're looking for, and we find the power of sin begins to become broken off of our lives. That's repentance. Do y'all, do y'all see that? Does that make sense to you guys this morning? It's a decision in our minds that produces action in our lives. It's a change of address from darkness to light. We're transferring into that kingdom. It's another reason why God hates it when that gets misrepresented. He doesn't want us moving from light to dark. He wants us moving from dark to light. We got to know what the light is. It's available in Jesus. So that repentance, it requires faith in Jesus and what he offers. And it requires recognizing, recognizing that God's correction is beneficial, that it will profit something that the old that we are exchanging is going to be worth it for the new that we are receiving. Amen? Okay. Last thing. It's, correction is necessary. Correction is beneficial. And finally, it's valuable. It's valuable. We already hinted at that a little bit in the last passage. It's valuable. Hebrews 12, verse 11 Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That is a valuable life. That's a valuable way to live. And it's available to us. And we get that by simply receiving forgiveness. We've confessed our sin a huge part of it. We've repented and turned to him. And now we're in his presence and we receive from him. We receive forgiveness. Now, as we wrap this up, I I just want to talk to you just kind of right here for a minute about forgiveness. Because I think there's, there's two different ways we can be ripped off from receiving forgiveness. Some of us don't know how to receive it. Some of us continue to beat ourselves up over things that God has said, I've already forgiven you for that. I love you. Do do you see the cross? I dealt with that. I covered that. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, buddy, to um, the Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 passage. This, This whole chunk of scripture we've been studying the last two weeks, the prelude to it, what leads into it is this, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look at this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. He says, listen, you can become weary and discouraged in your souls because you haven't seen Jesus. You haven't fully recognized what he's already dealt with for you. 
He faced the rejection. He faced the suffering. He dealt with the consequences of sin. It's on him. And he did it for joy. He didn't do it because he enjoyed it. He didn't do it because it was fun. He endured it because there was joy on the other side. You know what the joy is? The life he wants to share with you and I. The, the, the pleasure it brings him to say, hey, I want to correct something because it's going to be incredible in your life. I want to correct you of this. And when you can see it, that's the power of confessing. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but you haven't really learned something until you can communicate it clearly to somebody else. That's the power of confession. You really understand it because you can clearly communicate it. So I want you to see it. And then I want you to make a decision in your mind to turn from it and turn to me. And then you're going to come into my presence. And then there is joy because I'm going to forgive you. Don't live in weariness and discouragement. Receive forgiveness. Some of us just need to learn to be able to receive something from Jesus. He wants you to walk in new life. Just go like this. Go like this. I feel like there's even these like physical postures, right? Our knees. This generally represents humility, right? I get on my knees. This is where I'm confessing and I'm repenting. God, I, I confess my sin before you. I humble myself before you. God, would you forgive me? Then I move to the second part of repentance where I turn to him and that's surrender. God, I surrender my life to you. I give you my life. But then we need to learn to do this. We move from our knees to surrender to a posture of receiving. God, I receive from you the life that is available to me. I receive from you forgiveness. Take it. Open the gift. Receive the present. You can live with no regret. He said that godly sorrow will lead to repentance, which means no more regret. Receive forgiveness from him. You don't deserve it. But you're his kid and he loves you like crazy and it cost him a lot to give you that forgiveness. You are valuable to him. Correction is valuable because we are valuable. He loves us so much that he gave his life for us so that we could walk in forgiveness and freedom and new life so we could receive fully forgiveness from him. Let him lavish you with his love. Let him pour out forgiveness on you. Now, I said there were two obstacles. The second obstacle, I believe, is for many of us, um, we haven't understood the value of forgiveness because we have never learned how to forgive. I think there's a reason that Jesus attaches our ability to receive forgiveness from him with our willingness to forgive other people. Do you know he connected those two? Jesus talked about this in several places, but one of them is in, at the very end of the Lord's Prayer. Think about this. He ends the entire Lord's Prayer. It's full of incredible stuff. God, you're amazing. You're glorious. You're wonderful. Um, provide our daily needs. Talks about forgi God, forgive us as we forgive others. And then just to make sure we understood the importance of that part, he finishes the prayer and immediately goes into this sentence. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So why does God do this? I think it's for a couple reasons. I think 
God wants to use us the way we talked earlier about being a part of the ministry of reconciliation. God is about forgiving, so he wants us to be about forgiving. We're participating with him. But I also think he understands that we don't understand the value of something until we've had to experience the cost of that thing. What makes something valuable is what you're willing to spend on it. Until you have had to forgive someone of something really, really difficult and really, really painful that cost you something, I don't think we can really fully appreciate what it cost him to forgive us. When, when we reach the point where we're asking God to forgive us, the place I should be able to get to in my heart and mind is how much it hurt one of the hardest times in my life that I had to forgive because I, I, I appreciate the value. Does that make sense? Now, I don't have to earn that. I'm not, I don't want to get in some weird like, oh, I got to feel really ashamed in order to earn it. No, but I do need to appreciate the value of it. Forgiveness is not cheap. Has anybody here been hurt badly by someone else? Me and Tony, okay. Yeah, badly. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand about whether or not you've been able to walk in forgiveness yet, but that is a long, hard, painful road when you've been wounded badly and deeply and you're learning to forgive that person. But the beauty of Jesus is he lets us begin to experience him in his life. And that's a glimpse, that's a taste of the value of the forgiveness that we have received from him. See, we will come to really appreciate and enjoy the good news of Jesus Christ when we recognize the true value that is put on what it cost him to forgive us. The person doing the forgiving is the one that gets stuck with the weight of it. That's, that's kind of what happens. When I forgive, it doesn't make it all better. It means I'm not gonna hold that over you. Now I'm kind of stuck with it. I got it. The beauty of God's kingdom is we get to bring it all to him. I don't have to carry that weight. When I let somebody else off the hook, the burden comes here. Okay, I have it. I've let them off the hook, but now, God, I'm bringing that to you. Will you forgive them? And oh, by the way, would you forgive me? Would you set me free? We should come to him and learn forgiveness from him. How to give it, how to receive it, it's a beautiful exchange that's available. This is what happens as God corrects us. We receive, we, we confess, we repent, and then we ask for forgiveness. Have you ever thought about that, why we ask for it? Have you ever asked for something um, that, that costs a whole lot? Uh, let, me give you, let me give you an example. One of the hardest phone calls I ever had to make was to my dad when I was at school in another state, I was in Texas, I had been given a full scholarship to go to school. This is kind of confession and a picture of forgiveness. I, had, I got a full scholarship to go to school. By, by the end of my freshman year, I'd stopped going to class. And I had to call my dad on the phone and say, Dad, I need you to drive to Texas from Tennessee and come pick me up because I can't stay here anymore. <laughs> I, like, I've been living on campus and I haven't gone to class and like, can you come pick me up? 
I don't even know that I verbalized, I'm asking you for forgiveness, but I was asking him something that had cost a lot. Dad, would you come pick me up? Have you ever had to make some sort of a request like that where you really needed something from somebody else that you could not get on your own? When, when we're asking God for forgiveness, we're asking something that costs a lot. But the good news is he's a good dad. My dad was a picture of that. He just came and picked me up. I don't remember getting a single tongue lashing, talking to, none of that. You want it? Yeah, okay. So here's what you do. After this sermon, go talk to him about forgiveness. <laughs> but, but see, it, it hurt. It was hard. It was painful. And I really screwed up. But the beauty with God is I, sh I should have some understanding of what it costs to say, God, will you forgive me? But I don't have to sit under the weight of that. Does that make sense? I'm free to do that because for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross so he could give it freely. Is this making sense for you guys? I always feel like it's a hard road to walk when we talk about how much things cost in God's kingdom because it's easy then to live like elder brothers and try to earn it. I'm not talking about earning forgiveness. I'm talking about having a healthy appreciation for what it costs. And when I see what it costs, guess what? Then I treasure it. It's valuable. Jesus, what you have Jesus, what you've done for me is so precious and valuable. And I'm grateful. God, I'm grateful. And Lord, you call me to forgive others, and that's hard. But I know that's what you're up to in this world. You are up to the business of forgiving and working reconciliation. And God, when it hurts me really bad to forgive that person, thank you that at least it's a little bit of a picture of how much my forgiveness costs of how valuable it is. And so God, one more time, I treasure the forgiveness you've given me. And so God, will you help me to forgive this person and give away something that's very valuable? Because they took something from me that cost. God, help me forgive. That's what he's inviting us into with his correcting love. It's a life that gives freedom because it breaks bondage to sin. It's a life that brings healing from the consequences of sin. And it brings about joy and peace and rest in his presence because there's refreshing. Confession, repentance, forgiveness. That's the road we've been called to walk. And when we're sharing the love of Jesus with the world around us, that's what we're inviting them into. And we're going to be forgiving a lot along the way when we invite other people into that. Learning to forgive others is like the antidote to being an elder brother. It's the antidote to that. And the beauty is, when we learn to forgive, we get to enjoy the party. Because there is a party going on, celebrating the prodigals. Do y'all want to live in the party? Man, I do. All too often I sit outside the party, but I want to be in it. That's the life Jesus is inviting us into. Okay, y'all did great. Let's pray and we'll get out of here. Jesus, we thank you for your incredible love for us. God, thank you for even just giving us a picture, a taste of it. God, I thank you that you love us so much that you will correct things that rip us off. God, you help us to see them so clearly that we can confess and identify the problem. God, you give us the ability through faith, which even that is a gift from you, through faith to repent. 
You give us that ability to look at that thing and say, I'm done with it, to make up our mind about it, and to change, to change course, to change direction, to step into a new place. And God, that new place is in your presence where we find forgiveness. You have earned it. You fought for it. You've completed it. And God, our job is to go, wow, that's really a valuable, precious gift, and we get to receive it. God, would you help us to join you in this kind of life? Help us to be really good at throwing parties. God, if we've been prodigal, I pray we'd run home to you. God, if we've been elder brothers, Lord, help us to learn the power of forgiving other people so we can participate with you in throwing really good parties for the lost when they come home. God, we love you. We need you. Thank you that we're your kids. And even though it's hard to say, thank you for correcting us because you love us so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.